Cannabis-infused mocktail. I don't think it's got tea. Key lime, pineapple, jalapeno, agave. Yeah, it's, it's called a spicy Diablo margarita. I'm okay, but that does sound good. Yeah. Does anyone want to dim the window into Roku City for me? <laughs> How do I do that? Just turn the TV off. Oh. <laughs> so long, Roku City. Ooh, that is nice. Yeah, I'm surprised by how much I like that. I've had a lot of um, cannabis seltzers that just kind of taste like I'm drinking bong water. Ugh. Yeah. I haven't had that experience, thankfully. Yeah. It is true. I don't feel like I've ever had, like, sativa, like, really feel like it's, like, you know, giving me energy or focus. It's, it's not energy or focus. I usually experience it as anxiety. Maybe I've never had, like, good sativa or something, you know, but I feel like I just avoided it this it point. Can, it can be stimulating in a positive way. Like, it's good if you're, like, maybe doing something creative, but... Yeah. Um, I actually find, in my experience, sativa, it, it'll either make me feel anxious or it'll make me have my thoughts so quickly that I can't ever focus, really. Yeah. The only time I, like, felt um, noticeably the effect of high from, I think, a sativa blend, I'm not even sure if it was, though, <laughs> was me. when I... Yes, because it was those chocolate espresso bites. And I, I remember, remember I yeah, took, yeah. like, two... I took one, I didn't feel anything. I took two, I don't think I feel anything. Mm -hmm. And I took three, and then I started watching Stranger Things season four. And you're four. like... <laughs> and I was like... Well, it was, like, the weirdest timing because it, like, really hit me when, like, the clock sound effects started yeah. kicking in. Incredible. And it felt like time slowed down. <laughs> that's actually... That's actually, like, a really a good pairing, actually. Yeah, it was, like, it was an incredibly fortuitous thing to happen. It was, like... It didn't feel, like, good nor bad. I'm here now, and you know what? It's kind of working with this, so I guess I'm just going to buckle down and watch <laughs> ride this stranger. Yeah, let's ride this fucker yeah. out, baby. <laughs> To another episode of Why Do We Watch This, the podcast where three chums watch a shitty movie, talk about what worked, what didn't work, and how they would fix it. Broadcasting to you live from Boston, Massachusetts. I am your host for this episode, Brendan Ben Ben Drichler. I'm Chris Swathroat Ravel. And I'm Lee, those rascals of rhythm, Delahanty. <laughs> and I'll keep doing my radio voice for the rest of the episode oh because God. it's only fitting, because the movie we are discussing is Radio Land Murders. Chris, actually, can you tell me what year this movie came out? Do you have the Wikipedia? I open? do. Is it like 93 or some shit? Uh, 1984. 94. Okay. It was directed by Mel Smith, right? Mm -hmm. Who's like a British comedian who like we're probably kind of familiar with, right? Yeah. And written by... Screenplay by... Will Willard Huck. I don't know. Huck Hike. I don't know how to actually say it. Uh, Willard Hike, I guess. Gloria Katz, Jeff Reno, and Ron Osborne. Right. Because we'll come back to that later. Produced by George Lucas, which is also something that'll come back later. And story by George Lucas. And story by George Lucas. And... Starring, oi, okay, so there's a lot of people here. So you've got technically, you've got the leads who I guess are Brian Ben Ben and Mary Stuart Masterson. And then you've got like literally fucking everybody else in this I goddamn mean, movie. So Ned like, Beatty, right, Larry Miller. Michael, um, Miller, Michael McKeon, Jeffrey right. Tambor. Thank you. Stephen Tobolowski, yeah. Christopher Lloyd, uh, Scott Michael Campbell. Is he right? Right? Does he write? Right? Does, right. Does he sing? Does he sing? Does he sing? Jeremy Can we get a dog? Corbin Burnson, Bobcat Goldthwait, forgot about yep. him, Larry Miller, Harvey Corman, Morris. Dylan Baker, yeah. Jack Sheldon, and yeah, what else? Joey Lawrence, Billy Barty, Peter McNichol, Robert Klein, Rosemary Clooney, Rosemary and Clooney, George Burns show Bo up, Bo Hopkins, Tracy Bird, Candy Clark. 
Yeah. Again. A shit ton. Right. Basically, if anyone in the early to mid 90s who was alive when there was vintage radio on had a pretty good chance of cameo. Right. There's so yeah, you've got you've got like two different things here. You've got like the people playing the actual workers at this radio station, and then you've got like people on stage. And the people on stage, there's a lot of People who are around during the heyday of radio, and it's like so they're doing like their Rosemary shit, Clooney, right? Like example. Rosemary Clooney, or like George Burns doing comedy, or like Billy Barty doing a novelty number and right. shit like that. And so you've got a lot of that to deal with here. So as as you might gather from listening to this casting list, this movie it's a bit of a a bad tweet. Too many characters. It is a whirlwind. So having discussed that briefly, first let's go into what we wanted to drink to keep ourselves uh, nice and drunk while watching this movie. The drink that we made for this movie was called a W Bourbon. It is two ounces of bourbon, one and a half ounces of grapefruit juice, half an ounce of honey, and some rosemary sprigs. Uh, You just mix the bourbon, the grapefruit juice, the honey, and one rosemary sprig in a shaker with ice, strain it into a glass over ice, express the glass with a grapefruit peel slice. Express your glass. And then you garnish the cocktail with a rosemary sprig and some grapefruit peel. So it's basically kind of just a slight variation on a brown derby because I thought a brown derby felt like an era-appropriate drink for something like this, you know, like something from the 30s, early 40s. Um, And yeah, so that's what we went with. What did you guys think of the W Bourbon? Fantastic. Delicious. It was very good. Yeah, nice and simple. Grapefruit, honey, bourbon, yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong there. The grapefruit and the honey balanced really nice. They did. I was... Glad I did because I feel like there was some. I was just looking at basic brown derby recipes, and some of them were like, "Oh, you should use honey syrup and not just straight honey." So I was like, "Well, the straight honey, like, so honey syrup too- would just be even more sugary, sugary. right?" That was my thought too. I was like, I, "I don't want not, it to be sweeter, like, right?" It's got juice and it's got honey, so like, you don't need to add in sugar on top of that. Like, right. just keep it as it is. But yeah, it was um, very simple to make, which is always a nice thing when we have a nice, simple, straightforward drink. I'd order this at a bar. Yeah. Be very happy about it. As as I reminded myself whenever we did the Sword and the Stone drinks, always love a little bit of rosemary in some (laughs) drinks. It's always a nice little Clooney! And in this case, we got a a bit more rosemary in the movie itself, too, with our gal, Rosemary Clooney. (laughs) All right, so we have covered the drink recipe, and we should move on to the movie itself. So, Chris, Ah. will you turn to Wikipedia and let us know the plot, as it were, of rosemary? Radio Land Murders. I sure will. In 1939, a new radio network based at station WBN in Chicago, Illinois, begins its inaugural night. The station's owner, General Walt Whalen, depends on his employees to impress main sponsor Bernie King. This includes writer Roger Henderson, assistant director Penny Henderson, Roger's wife seeking a divorce, page boy Billy Budget, engineer Max Applewhite, conductor Rick Rochester, announcer Dexter Morris, director Walt Whalen, Jr., and stage manager Herman Katzenbach. After King commissions rewrites on the radio scripts, the WBN writers get angry, complaining they have not been paid in weeks. Timely pressure. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> when when trumpet player uh, Ruffles Reedy falls dead from rat poisoning, a series of events in- ensue. Uh, director Walt Jr. is hanged. The mysterious killer makes it look like a suicide, and his father, the general, has the Chicago Police Department get involved to solve the murder mysteries as the nightly radio performance continues. Katzenbach is then killed, 
After attempting to fix the main stage when the machinery malfunctions, Kenny is appointed or Penny rather is appointed both stage manager and director due to Walt Jr. and Katzenbach's deaths. Roger tries to solve the killings, greatly annoying the police led by Lieutenant Cross. Because Roger unfortunately appears at every crime scene just as the murders take place, he is ruled as the prime suspect. Roger and Billy Budget then theorize that the announcer Dexter Morris is next to die. Dexter ignores their warning and is fatally electrocuted. By going through private documents, in WBN's file room, Roger finds that the victims all previously worked together at a radio station in Peoria, Illinois, which he correlates to a secretive FCC scandal. King dies from laughing gas and General Whalen uh, dies from falling down an elevator shaft. Uh, they each die after Roger's warning, making the police even more suspicious. After escaping from custody, Roger uses Billy to communicate and send scripts to Penny. When rewriting one of the programs, Gork, Son of Fire, Roger attempts to write the script with self-referential events, proving to everyone that the mysterious killer is actually sound engineer Max Applewhite. Max explains that his killings were a revenge scheme that dealt with stockholders and patents, specifically detailing his invention of the television... Uh, which other scientists have copied. Max takes Roger and Penny atop the radio tower at gunpoint, but is eventually killed when a biplane shows up and guns him down. (laughs) Impressed by the nightly performance, the sponsors decide to fund WBN. Roger and Penny reconcile their complex relationship and decide not to divorce. And that, as we say... Is Radioland Murders. Can you give us a brief rundown of, like, actor and character? Granted, I feel like we're probably not going to remember the names uh, very well. But... Brian Benben plays Roger ben Henderson. Benben. Benben. Um, okay, boss. Uh, Mary Stewart Masterson was Penny. Scott Michael Campbell is Billy Budget. Michael Lerner is Lieutenant Cross. Ned Beatty is uh, General Walt Whalen. Uh, Brian James is Bernie King. Stephen Tobolowski is Max Applewhite. Michael McKean is Rich, uh, Rick Rochester, the uh, conductor. Corbin Burnson is Dexter Morris. Bobcat Goldthwaite is just credited as Wild Raider. <laughs> yep, that's it. Um, Anita Morris as Claudette Katzenbach, which didn't really come up. Jeffrey Tambor as Walt Whalen Jr., I don't want to keep going. No, I mean, that's fine. I think once you've hit the big ones. Christopher you're... Lloyd is the sound designer. Yeah, Zoltar or Zoltan or Z- something. Zoltan, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's, all right. Great. So as... as of thousands. Right. As we said previously, there are a fucking shit ton of people and characters in this movie. So just to kind of start, I guess, on the ground floor, uh, just like a little bit of basic history of this movie. There's not a whole lot of information. Like, if you Google Radioland Murders, you're not going to find a whole lot of shit beyond, like, the basic things that, like, Wikipedia and IMDb list as trivia for this movie. Mm-hmm. To start with, this was a movie that George Lucas had the idea for back in the 70s, around the same time he did um, American Graffiti. Oh. And it was even announced in the 70s that, like, George Lucas's follow-up to American Graffiti is going to be Radioland Murders. So he had a very, even then, like, a retro thing happen. Right. It's also nuts, like, when you think about, like, American Graffiti is nostalgic for a period that is 12 years prior to it, which is, like, imagine making a movie today that's like, God, I really miss, like, 2010. Not I don't a long, know anything it's about a, American Graffiti. It's, it's, it's like, a 50s movie that was made in the early 70s. Okay. And it was, like, one of the first times of, like, like us really understanding you could, like, monetize nostalgia. Is that the one with, um... Who's in it? Ron Howard, um, Richard Dreyfuss. No, I don't know. Is Richard Gere in it, too? No, Richard Gere's What's the one with the paper bag? American Beauty? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Different. (laughs) Yeah. Very different movie. Yeah. Um, American Graffiti is like, it's their last night... And high, it's before I like see. school ends, and it's like I see. It, it's a good movie, American Review, To be fair, it is a good movie. But um, it's it's so interesting, also then to us like think about how George Lucas was involved with like 
another pulp inspired series with like Indiana Jones. Right. He had a vi- he had a very big kind of radio pulp thing. I mean, he, he is like aggressively like a very big baby boomer, George Lucas. Yes. Like and like very one who's like very fond of looking back at his childhood yes. and being like, what if I did the thing that I loved in my childhood? Okay, that's Star Wars. Right. Really. Exactly. Star Wars, which is like based off of Flash Gordon serials mm-hmm. and shit like that. And so like the thing that I find weirdest about Radio Land Murders is that it's nostalgic for something that was like kind of even before his time like he would yeah. have been like a baby effectively at this point if he was alive at all yeah he would be he would have just been he, his mom would have boomed him out right <laughs> um and, and so, like, which makes it, I guess, even nuttier that it came out as a movie in the 90s when it's, yeah. like, you're making a movie that's nostalgic for, like, this era of radio when, like, so, like, is your target audience 60-year-olds or um, something like that? This would have been around the same time that we were getting, like, Dick Tracy, which was also looking at a similar time right. period. No, that's true. Um, uh, do you remember also how, like, Dick Tracy and even fucking, uh, like, The Birdcage had original music made by Sondheim? That yeah. was, like, a thing then to, like... I think it was, like, a prestige kind of thing to be, like, and we'll have Sondheim write us a song. Right, we'll but then to also pair it... I mean, I guess that's less true for Birdcage, but, like, to pair it with this very, like theatrical kind of period Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that is too is because he does a lot of, like, pastiche stuff mm-hmm. for shows, so it's kind of like, if you want a song that sounds like it's something from the 1930s, he can do that for right. you. And so, like I said, this was a movie that was originally supposed to kind of come out in the 70s after American Graffiti, and then just never happened. I think, like, they had announced Steve Martin as the Brian Ben-Ben character, <laughs> and Cindy what Williams, diff- I want to say, as the Mary Stuart Masterson. What a different movie. I know, movie. like, it's hard for me to not look at that and think, like, probably would have been a better movie with Steve Martin. But then, obviously, it's simply never happened it was put on a shelf my understanding was that studios were like this feels niche and too expensive so like we're not going to make this movie what about your space wars picture (laughs) and so this was something that he kind of had wanted to do for a while and there were various versions of the script the two people who made you mention earlier Mm -hmm. um willard hike or hook or whatever glory cats they're a married couple who george lucas just knows they did the screenplay for american graffiti they did uncredited work for uh the script for the first star wars movie they like punched it up after the fact to make it better and they also did howard the duck but there it is <laughs> so you know you... so they were with him on the first marvel movie yes effectively. <laughs> yes on the ground floor of the mcu with howard the duck and so by the time that this had started to become more of a thing that george lucas wanted to do again in the 90s he was basically like okay so we can make this movie for much cheaper than we initially thought because what I want to do for this movie is also use it as kind of like a dry run for digital map backgrounds, which this movie does oh. a lot of for exterior okay. shots. Like if you think about like all the times you see them on the outside of the tower. Or the which, falling. Right, with Chicago in the background. It's a lot of like digital mats. And it was basically him being like, is it feasible to do this as a thing? Like, is it cheap enough to do this as a thing? Will this make your movie look okay? Can you get it done faster and cheaper than you normally could? I mean, was it for the time? It looked okay. I think, yeah, I think it's, it still looks pretty good as far as that's considered. My understanding is that it still ended up being more expensive than he initially pitched. Like, I think he said, like, we can do it for $10 million and it cost fifteen or whatever. But this was effectively, in some respects, a dry run for what he wanted to do with the Star Wars prequels. So what is a digital mat, exactly? It's basically, I, my understanding is just that instead of using the traditional process for a matte painting to add like a matte painting in the background can we composite it digitally and still make it look like something is actually physically i guess i literally and i know that i went to school for this yeah (laughs) i guess i literally just thought that matte paintings were just physically behind the set i did as well i I think that would just be a backdrop would be my understanding if i'm also i'm probably the wrong person to ask i'm sure there are people who know much more about this shit than me is rear projection when they would have just been playing live footage right rear projection is like if you're driving in a car going do 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 and they have like a background really bad yeah rear projection has never looked great like 
It's very obvious. God, God bless us, we tried. Well, because, like, it might look better now, but, like, back yeah. then, when you're watching a film, it was, you had lines and figurines. I was gonna, yeah, it's already, like, poor quality. Like, the image yeah. behind you already looks like it's of shitty quality, and then you're still, like, filming it yet again, so it looks even worse, because this is, like, two layers of film, effectively. Yeah, it's just so funny to think of this movie as being a special effect showcase. In that right, way. it is, because, like, <laughs> this is, like, a special effect-heavy movie, despite the fact that it's not, so, really. So, a digital mat is, like, is the painting itself not a physical painting that someone made? I think it can be or it can't be. I think it depends really it's, on what you wanted to do. I think it's mostly just the the idea that you're doing it digitally versus like manually in post. Right. Yeah. It yeah. sounds like it was it's like a the first a step towards what would just become a normal like composited image. Right, which is like what we do now for almost everything where it's right. like yeah, sure you can use a miniature as part of a digital mod. You can yeah. use an entirely CGI generated yeah. something or other. Step towards uh, every frame is so dense. Yeah, so right. dense. So much going on. So much and to be fair, there is so much going on in every fucking frame. Yeah, there's of this a lot going on. every frame is very dense. <laughs> to the, to the <laughs> similar complaint that we made about it when it was with like Attack of the Clones there's just always so much going on that your eyes glaze over. Right. I mean, so so for for this specifically, it's it's less of there's a lot of motion and action. It's more just like there's a lot of goofy slapstick happening and everyone's Constantly. running around waving their hands around. And you're cutting from one slapstick situation to the other. Yeah. And it's fascinating to hear that it was almost, uh, or it was originally going to be Steve Martin because, I mean, obviously, like I'm just thinking if it was him... Like all of that physical physical comedy would have landed. Yeah, no, like, I agree. Ben Ben couldn't yeah, sell it. Yeah, it's still like I, I feel like it's still, parts of it would still be like grating and over the top. Yeah, it's still too much. Yeah, but, but like I, Steve Martin would maybe. I don't. I think that he would have. I think that he would maybe fight it. Maybe that's that's also, why he's not in it. Yeah, and because he was Steve Martin, he would have been like, I don't think so. Maybe he would have been like, guys, I, at most I need four people to knock me through the door. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to keep coming through the door, the knocking me to the floor yet yeah. again and again and again. After the fourth one, the bit is dead, right. actually. It does feel like one of those things, like, maybe you need more, like, inherently comic performers in here to tell, to you, tell you, like, like let's ease off a little anymore. bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so this is basically, like I said, it was a movie that George Lucas got made because he told Universal Studios it would be on the cheap. It was made for pretty cheap, but not quite as cheap as he promised. It did not do well in theaters, uh, obviously. So George Lucas had also said that supposedly Universal had requested that they go in and remove a lot of specific references to radio things what? that were like at the time because they were worried that, you know, people wouldn't understand these references. And for what it's worth, I have read a few accounts online of people being like, the original version of the script was pretty funny, and what I saw on screen was not so funny. So, cutting out those references, maybe it sounds like it took out some of the... Like the heart and soul, I guess, kind yeah. of almost, right? Which kind of makes sense why it's so... Meh? Meh, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, there's always something happening, but it's almost like it was directed by uh, Nancy Myers in that <laughs> the structure is so loose and rambling, it's so hard to follow, like, a flow to the events... It's just, it is. like, it's just people kind of just running into each other in different settings yeah, over right. and over and over again. Yes. And then it's, it's one like, pretty funny visual gag that then gets repeated, like, five times. Right. Like, um, is the idea of Michael McKean and his band getting fucked up by that moving stage funny? Yes. At is, first, yes. Is it funny for <laughs> Right. Is it funny after you've seen it happen many, many more times? No. no. It is not. <laughs> 
Having said that, we should transition to, I guess, what, what the fuck is the tone of this movie? So this is a really sort of quote-unquote fascinating case to study. It should be like a fairly straightforward tone in that you expect it to kind of be a comedy murder mystery, which right. is certainly a genre. We don't do it so much anymore. It was certainly a thing that happened in the heyday of the 30s. You would have like Abbott and Costello, I don't know, some other radio personages, like they get trapped in a haunted house and someone starts dying. And so, yeah, there's a murder mystery and there are like scary elements right. to it, but it's also kind of like goofy and funny. And funny. And it's usually more like a heightened style exercise. Right. On the one hand, like I said, you feel like that's kind of what the tone should be. Mm -hmm. But then this movie, of course, goes, no, 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 that's not what the tone is. It is that. But then on top of that, it's also sort of like you said, Chris, there's the elements of comedy of remarriage, where the leads are a married couple who are in the process of getting divorced, and the man's like, no, no, please don't divorce me. He doesn't want to. She definitely wants Right, and she definitely wants to. You've got elements of um, screwball thrown into this Mm -hmm. movie as well, which, like, while, of course, screwball movies were popular around the same time that these sort of comedy murder mysteries were, it's two don't necessarily gel together in quite the same way. Nor did you include the remarriage bit usually with either of those. And then... Well, I feel like there are some screwball comedies that have the elements of the comedy of remarriage in them as well. So, like, I feel like that's certainly not an outlandish pairing. There's farcical elements. Right. There's definitely a lot of slapstick. Like, I had said to Lee, I think... Too much. I had said to Lee, I think, when you were going to get your food that, um... (laughs) It, like there are elements that feels like noise is off almost where yeah. it's like the, the, the like the radio plays are going wrong like no one has the pages and we've got the wrong pages and they're all mixed up and so like now people are saying things meant for the other radio play and so you've got like so many fucking elements to this movie yeah, a lot of I which mean, are kind of fighting each other go well, ahead it's like it's sort of like tone versus plot here but because I think that tone wise they're all sort of a same a similar tone really but I think that it's because like if you're talking about a, a comedy of remarriage or a screwball comedy or a comedy murder mystery, I think those can have a very similar tone where, like, everyone's being very jocular. It's like they make pithy comments when right. a dead body shows up and it's like, oh, well, he won't be smoking another cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all very, like, lighthearted and right. frothy and fun. And we don't really delve into darker subjects. So that all gels. It's just like, for me, it's the plot. It's like there's too many things happening because there's like the scripts are wrong. The scripts are all mixed up and or don't exist. And we need to like there's constantly this. That's a whole arc that's happening behind the scenes. Then there's the the divorce thing, mm-hmm. which is a separate issue, mm-hmm. and the murder thing. That's too many things to be happening. I agree. And I would also say that, like, despite the fact that it's called the Radioland Murders, it feels like the murders are almost, like, kind of incidental to a lot of the other they plot rush, that's happening they on. They through most of where, them. Or, or, or they just sort of happen. And again, like, this, this will go into story as well. I feel like this is not a murder mystery you could solve by watching the movie. Like, you couldn't put together the clues. Yeah. All you can do is do, like, you can watch and react to what the characters are doing. So when the character says, like, why they all worked together back at this radio station in Peoria, you can be like, ah, yes, they did. And then when he goes to, like, find the picture of everyone on the radio station in Peoria, you can be like, yes, that's six people there, so ergo, I can tell you who the murderer is, the one who's not dead in that photo. I mean, it's fucking bizarre, by the way, that they've all worked together at this, like, scandal radio station, and, like, they don't, that's never bubbled to the surface. Right. I I get, so I'm a little, maybe they said something, and I missed, so... I, I, part of it, I guess, is because, like, this is the launch of the radio network, I think, is what it is. Mm. Is it? Well, I don't know. So they seem... Said in the Wikipedia thing, it's their inaugural night. But okay. even if so, there had to have been, like, a lot of meetings. Right. That happened like, prior to the starting. Hey, one of you wants to kill the other nine or whatever, however yeah. many of there were. 
And here's like, yeah, pr- planning meeting one. Like, how does that not come up? Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess he's just, uh, Stephen Toblowski's just playing it so close to the vest that he's yeah. like, like, no, I'm very fine with you all being here. Yeah. And then like secretly bubbling inside him is the desire to bump them all fucking off. For the TV. For, yeah, for, for stealing, it's, like somehow. I, I, I'm a, yeah, I'm yeah. a little confused by like, so it was like and he was developing. Yeah, he was like developing the TV and his TV was very good, but then, like, somehow they have the... Pa- like, I really don't... Right, under- I know yeah. why... I know he's mad about TV, but, like, because he's making a TV, and, like, that's all I could tell you. I can't really tell you how that ties in to the other people who he's killing off and why they did something to wrong him. Unless it was, like, again, I know because he mentions patents, too. Is it something where, like, they hold the patents and they sold the patents right. or something? Because, like, he developed it at their... I don't know. I don't fucking know. But the, the mere fact of the matter is, as I said, this is not really, like, a mystery that you can solve by watching things unravel and looking for clues mm-hmm. or, you know, picking up on weird things that someone might say to another person and you file away in the back of your mental Rolodex and be like, oh, it's interesting that so-and-so has said that they used to know so-and-so <laughs> back in this other town. Because here it's just, like... And again, you would think that that should almost come up in something like this. Like you said, Lee, like when you're having a meeting prior, like someone should mention offhandedly like, oh, yeah, I've been working with this guy for like six years. We met back in Peoria. And, you know, like these other guys were also hey, there, we, too. We were all co-workers. Right. Like, like, mm. like someone should just say like casually even to other persons like, yeah, like they're a good crew. I've been working with them for forever. Yeah. On that note. Uh, I feel like this might have been something we discussed before. I can't remember where. Maybe it was with um, Orient Express. Like. Do you think it's important to be able to solve a mystery while you're watching a mystery? Yeah, like, in theory, okay. Like, yeah. my, my stance is still that, like, in theory, even if you can't solve it while the movie is, like, laying it out, you should be able to then go back, look at it again, and be like, ah, oh, I was planting the seeds of this, this, and this. I think even if you don't give people that opportunity, it can still be an effective mystery. I just think it. Uh, you run the risk, and this movie certainly falls into this trap, of making it feel like it's a mystery only because they withheld information from you. Right. Like, it's... I feel like that's... It is, I guess, in some sense, a mystery. And that could give you an, a, some kind of mystery-ish experience, but I don't find that sense. Well, because, like, again, like, you're not presented with the information from the get-go, and then right. you have to sort it out. It's just sort of like, oh, well, we didn't tell you that they were all co-workers. Right. And then they were. And then they, they do tell you towards the end, and you're like, oh, okay. Okay, so yeah, now. right. So this all relates to something, I suppose. Yeah, I think I don't think that you need to give everyone all the information to be able to solve it at the same time as the reveal happens in the movie. I think that the most important thing is that it doesn't come out of nowhere and right. make no sense. Right, so it's not just the detective yeah. pointing something like, and it was you, sir, who did the thing. And he's like, yeah, it was. Yeah, and the most important thing in the positive case where you've guessed it right is that it was not at all obvious. Right, and right. that so, you that you didn't figure it out like 30 minutes before yeah. And beyond that, I don't did. think there are any rules. Uh-huh. I think the rules are it can't be out of nowhere and it can't be obvious. I don't care if you if I'm able to solve it on the first go. I mean, like, that's, again, to be fair, like, I don't care if I can solve a mystery while watching the movie. Yeah. And a lot of the times when I'm watching the movie, if I'm watching something like that, I'm not even trying to do the guesswork because I just trust that the movie is going to keep the ball rolling well enough that it won't matter that I've been able to guess it or not. So, like, I don't really care if I can. It's more of like, I care in retrospect. Did it make sense? And could you theoretically solve this mystery with the information that was presented to you? Yeah, there's a couple things that I think um, happen in movies where this is sort of obfuscated, where one of them is like, 
the detective does something behind the scenes that he only tells you, or she or she, or mm. they only tell you, like... They got out to that a lot, I'm I sure did this, yeah, like, I... Well, as you see, I, I, when it comes to be reveal time, it's like right. the off and the like off, yeah, right. brothers. You said this, but then I fact checked it with this. Right, right. So, right. So you don't know that the detective yes. has this crucial piece of information. Yeah. So right. he has done the legwork, and so it's obvious. But I kind of like. I think my ideal form of it is when you're able to at least be like, something's this guy sus. Yeah. yeah. This boy, he's sus. I can't put my finger on it. Right. But there's something up. But he saw he's he, he does something that you're just like that doesn't add up and it doesn't even it might even be obvious right away. Uh-huh. But you're like, wait a minute. Right. I feel like I've had that a lot with like um episodes of Poker Face when I watched that, where it was yeah. like someone will do or say something where I'm like, this is going to contribute to how they will figure out I enjoyed but, poker yeah. face. I do too, though. yeah. But I, I do too, yeah. I'm not knocking poker face. And but it's like you it's like what Lee said, you'll pick up on something and be like, I'm not sure how this will tie into like will. the mystery, yeah. but like somehow this will and like or, a character who is smarter than me will know how it tied or into the, the mystery. The best is like when they say something that doesn't seem suspicious. And then it comes back and, and then it comes back yeah. and you're like, wait, the fuck that doesn't fucking make any sense. Like, wait, back up to this guy. Right. Objection. <laughs> right. Phoenix, right? Sustained. Yeah, and it's like... Well, watch yourself kind of yeah. yeah, like or an episode later, somebody says something that directly contradicts what that person said. Right, yeah. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> One of you is wrong. But yeah, I think like, yeah, it's it's a... To do it effectively, I think it's a combination of like, you have to have multiple sus people. Right. And one of them is sus for a different reason that's not related or, or they're just... Or they're just... You're just sus... They just, they're just seem shady, but they're not. Yeah. I mean, I, I would almost... Yeah. Argue that like no one feels that suspicious in this movie simply no. because you barely get to meet them as there's, characters. There's, yeah, it's I like, mean, there's just too many. It right, been the fucking you know one of the three blonde backup singers from like right. Oh no, I mean God. like that's the thing too, where it's like. <laughs> Like, are these characters supposed to be suspects? Where it's like, you see so many other fucking characters. Yeah. It's like, should I be keeping track of, like, what this crooner is doing right. at any given point? Should, like, we, should we be keeping eyes on every member of the band? Right. Like, yeah. like th- I mean, is... Michael McKean does a lot of mugging, so you'd think that he might be. <laughs> That's right. But he's also been on stage the entire time. What, so. what if it was Michael McKean and then, like, the end of the movie he's, is just him, like, But, like, all a true conductor, lines. he's orchestrating it all. From, Incredible. <laughs> from the stage. Incredible. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. That would be awesome. <laughs> and I get it! Yeah, and then suddenly he just has all of the lines instead of, like, none of them. Yeah. Lines. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I guess this is all kind of tying into the general sort of plotting of the movie, which is that there, there's a lot going on here. You it's a very... Plot, though. Well, I mean, well, there's there, three of them. Yeah, there's there are multiple plots happening, just that none of them are really given enough, you know, time right. to be dealt with because you have to deal with a guy in a penguin costume or someone getting hit with a door many, many times. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you have to keep cutting back to the stage so that you can see Rosemary Clooney sing a song. Or get, like, or get another comedy act or get another ad. Right. Or Yeah, exactly. Or another, another like, wacky orchestra or some shit like that. I, this is so nitpicky and it doesn't really matter, but it, it did amuse me to think of, like, how long was it in between each act where, I mean, the sets got increasingly, instead of the costumes, they got increasingly elaborate. Yeah, it's like, yeah, where... So I was right. like, how long did it take to Maybe? set up up the, the, the fake bubble bath, for example. Do you think maybe the... because it was inaugural, that's why there was so much effort? Oh, I, you could I, You could probably explain it away that way, I suppose. Yeah, like, that but could I, certainly I need to be know. It. it makes no... Because, again, I, we talked about it. You guys have mentioned it. It makes no sense. It seems so expensive 
to have a live audience, and just for the benefit of them, for the 20 mm-hmm. or so people in the live audience, to have costumes. all of these sets and right. costumes. Yeah, dude. Like, I, it's like, I can appreciate, like, a little bit of costume, because if you do have a live audience, like, maybe it's fun to have one of your actors show yeah. up dressed like the character, so the audience is like, hey, I'm getting something out of this. Like but the, the Caveman idea, one. Right. Or, or like, when the, 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 like, the not Zorro mask, right. whip, whatever the fuck the guy was. And so, like, that's fine. But then when you get to the point where it's like, and now we have an interior home set, and they're talking yeah. about, like, and it's like, why did you go through the trouble or, of constructing all of that shit. They just have some woman who's like pretending to bathe at one point. I'm like, Look, see, so like, hi. and those are the things like I can kind of overlook that too because they're commercials. So I can kind of believe the idea that some bubble bath company sure. would be like, we got to construct a bubble bath for her to walk it on because yeah. like the audience there is going to see that. Remember Johnson's bubble bath or whatever yeah, shit like sense. that. Like that's fine. But like, yeah, it, it is an increasingly elaborate presentation of what is an audio medium yeah. for this movie. Yeah, I can appreciate that you want an orchestra. Maybe even you have. Have a rotating stage so that you can spin the orchestra off. If you want to throw the money at the orchestra, sure, great. Maybe this was normal for like showing people the like in person who you're gonna hear on the radio. Like this is what the Black Whip looks like. So when you hear the adventure later, <laughs> yeah. you know right. what that guy looks. You like can have it in your stuff. head and be like, ah, it was that old guy with the whip. Your, your imagination, even though that's what radio is all about. You just look at this picture that we drew. Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Just yeah, you don't we need to know what bubble bath looks you. like. Yeah. Right. In terms of plot, this is a sort of very Hmm. convoluted yet weirdly simplistic plot simply because there are a lot of different stories being told here and it feels like at any given point any of them will take a backseat to whatever the movie wants to focus on we, right now. We rotate through them. Right. Yeah. Like at various points you sort of kind of, you, you remember there's a murderer because right. they keep, the cops keep chasing Brian right. and Ben. You're not sitting there thinking oh who will the murderer go after next? And even when they discover that the phantom voice messages are references to the person who will die. Mm -hmm. It happens like so quickly that, you know, you don't even have time to sort of like marinate on this. Right. right? And what it means or how it connects. And it starts and like they solve it so quickly too that it's not even like, oh, act one is going to be us realizing that these messages are a coded reference to something and we must think as an audience who they're talking about. But it's just sort of like, hey, maybe it's a reference. I think it's this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy, but who will be the next guy? It's almost like they thought... We need to do, like, quick, snappy powder, and so, too, must we move as quickly through plot points. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and you never really get to hang with one for very long. It just zips. And, yeah, it's... it's, We we cut away from the murder plot, which feels really... You kind of get that in fits and starts, it feels like, to the point where I can't follow it. Like, I'm just like, okay, someone else died, fine, whatever. Uh, but I think, am, am I correct in saying one of the other plots is the divorce slash yeah, yeah. So, I mean, slash that woman te- like is pretending as if she's having an affair with she Ben? She is ben? having an affair, but she's not. She's not having an affair with Brian Ben Ben. I she's think not even pretending to have right? an affair with him. Right. Um, she, that's just a misunderstanding. Right. But the three plots, I can take a step. With them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go idea. for it. Pretty good handle on this. Yeah. So give us that handle. One plot is um, it's the inaugural night of this radio station, and they need to impress the big sponsor guy, Mr. Right. King, Mr. King, the podcast king of Chicago. So We've met a, him before. They have a really good night, but the writers haven't been paid in weeks, and something happens to all the scripts. Yeah, somehow all the scripts get messed up in a way we don't quite understand yeah, why. King, according to Wikipedia, King asks for rewrites. On and then, all the scripts. And then the writers freak out. Okay. The writers freak out, so there's no scripts. Right. And it's the night of, and everyone's like, we don't know what to do, we have no scripts. And so, like, scripts are being, so it's it's basically this sort of, like, screwball cavalcade. Right, a farce. Of, like, like, scripts being, like, ferreted back in. and right. forth. 
Right, which which in of itself could be a comedy. Yeah, there's several times where they're they're just sending out a few pages to cover them while yeah, they write the or rest. Like right, Penny is writing the the, the newly minted director stage manager mm-hmm. is like writing a page of dialogue to tide them over. Right, and so like it's like you have one page of dialogue and then the actors are like sitting there being like, well, it's an interesting yeah, mystery. They just start uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So you've got that one. That's like plot. That's plot plot one. A or one. Uh, plot two is or B. Uh, like seven or eight of these employees at this radio station worked at another radio station in the past. And now they're getting murdered. And they're getting murdered because the sound engineer is mad at them all for, for patents. stealing patents <laughs> yeah, for or a TV something. Yeah, or for something. for television, but I don't remember for specifics. For television patent rules. And he's also and it, quietly convinced that radio is dead. Yeah, and yeah. for for a media, for a for a movie that uh, posits itself as a murder mystery comedy mm-hmm. it's it's telling that none of us can really pinpoint the specifics of yeah. <laughs> yeah right it's more like I remember I know that he's mad at them and I know it has I mean, to do with his invention but I don't really know why we elucidate that much on the scandal we just know that they worked at a radio station there was like an FCC like an FCC merger FCC thing or something that like caused them to get shut down yeah and then the third plot is that uh, the writer Ryan, he's his name I don't know what his name is because we just keep calling him Ben 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 Ben, ben. Um, yeah. but his the, he is married to Penny um, who is the, like the assistant director she's or like some the, shit. basically like a, she's listed as like a secretary I think to the director. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, she's like an assistant to the director, and then yeah. it's like she gets bumped up because like everyone else dies. Yeah, she gets bumped up from like assistant to the director to like now you are the director right, and also right. the stage well, manager. Right. In the eyes of the sponsors, later we find out they think that she was kind of heading up the whole thing. Yeah. Well, right. In any case, like they are married, they have been married for a long time, but she thinks that he is cheating on her and wants a divorce with the right. RW and an RD. With yeah, with, with the RW and RD, this like sort of diva actress, Lena Lamont type, Lena Lamont type, yeah, yeah, who is also married to like the manager, to the current stage manager, yeah, Waylon, what's that, Waylon? I don't know, Larry Herman, Miller, Herman oh. something something. She's married to Larry Miller, right? Herman yeah. Katz, and she's also having an affair with Jeffrey Tambor, who is the son of the yes. general who owns the radio station. Yes, like there's. There's a lot going on. She's having multiple affairs. And there's, like, pictures of her affair with Yeah, Tim and there's Moore. a scene of, like, there's, like, a... There's evidence of, like, her being in a room with Ben-Ben, where it looked weird, but right. he was just, like, talking to her about a script or something. Right, and then he hit under a table, and then when Larry yeah. Miller walks in, it's like, aha, why were you under the table? Yeah, and so, like, she thinks that they've been having an affair, Penny and does. they haven't. Yeah. Basically, like, a waste of our 90 minutes <laughs> right. uh, and change. And we don't even really revisit that in a satisfying yeah. way. Well, no, because it's just, yeah, right, like, because the entire time it's him saying, like, I, I didn't, didn't have an affair, like, I'll, I'll have her tell you that you didn't have an affair, and she's like, I think you did have well, the affair. Yeah. And then at the end, they're basically just like, I guess you didn't. Like, they just Sort of agree the to most, like the most we get is there's a cut to her reaction when the RW and an RD woman is like, Oh, it was a joke, it was just a joke. I was playing a joke to make her think that we were having an affair. And there's a cut to her to uh, Mary Stewart Masterson being like, Oh, like, oh but shit. she never then follows up with right, like apologizing like, to me. Hey, like, hey, I'm really sorry, yeah. but also, like, I kind of saw something, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Maybe we should have had a better talk, and maybe we should have involved Lena Lamont a lot sooner in the conversation. <laughs> and, then, and then Ben Ben said, I'm sorry, but this is the 1930s, and communication between men and women, especially when they're promoted. married, is... <laughs> yeah, my word is law, actually. Yeah, so. it's good. we don't actually do that. God, me, you, okay? <laughs> and then at the end, it's just washed away, and they're fine again. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
I, I don't even know like what the movie thinks the primary plot is. I assume the movie thinks the murder mystery if you, is if you the primary the plot. Right, they right. Do, but it's but the fucking production the, the yeah. script frenzy is so strong and full of bits and gags and slapstick that I can't re- remember anything before. No, I mean it yeah. almost it almost feels like they were lacking in confidence about the mystery yeah. plot. Yeah. And so like we gotta judge it up by throwing a lot of antics into yeah, this. Yeah, it's like sort of like um like a glaze they put over the whole movie. They're yes. just like, here, let me just coat this yeah. slapstick. <laughs> make it go down easy, right? Yeah. Some more broad physical humor. You know, like, um, like a glaze curtain? <laughs> I think that's a possibility. I also was thinking, like, I wonder if the intention was supposed to be, oh, here's how we're going to make it funny. We're, like, really going to lean into slapstick and, like, goofy broad humor. And I think that could have worked, but it almost feels like they just got carried away with it. They were just like, more! Yeah. We need, uh, like, rule of, we need a rule of threes fucking everything. We need to do everything at least three rule times. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, we can't just have one moment when Ben Ben runs up to the police in a Carmen Miranda outfit. We should have two. Yeah. It's stuff where it's like, if you maybe didn't do it for so long, it would still be funny, but they R- just yeah, no, that's turning yeah, right. the crank. And also, I think, like, there, there's a handful of jokes that are kind of funny in this, I feel like. Yeah, like, at least conceptually. Right. And all, like, like it's like a cartoon joke, almost. When Brian Benman's dressed as, like, a, a salsa dancer or something, yeah. and, like, he runs into a police officer, and, like, police officer, like, tries to stop him, and he just, like, does a little dance the police officer starts doing the dance too which is against like a Bugs Bunny cartoon right. where he'll just, like start dancing and someone else will. Well, there's like the, the bit with, when they first find the dead trumpeter. Oh yes. Or something. Yes. And, and then like the curtain immediately closes and Christopher Lloyd is like he's dead and the three girls are like ah! Yeah. <laughs> oh my god their gas cartoon so gas yeah. in unison and that is really good as well. That's a solid bit. Yeah. They also I have... want more of that. Right. I, like, like it feels like they're, they're, the cartoony bits work but the slapstick is the thing that kind of it I feel like my read on this is I think they set out to focus on the murders Mm -hmm. and I think where they got sidetracked was in all of the fun bits they wanted to do in between and I think they it's like they got carried away there were too many ads there were too many Mm -hmm. band set pieces there were too many costume changes right it feels like that audience was watching this radio broadcast for like six. Yeah, I do kind of. It does literally feel like that audience. <laughs> the audience was like leaving at like five in the morning. And be like, oh my god, this just yeah, didn't end, did it? It's so nuts to me how long it feels. Both right, because like we see like eight the, different it's, shows. It's actually like some sort of like I have no mouth and I'm a scream. <laughs> yes, sort of like horror where there's, where there's where, some um, sort of personalized hell where they just have to walk. <laughs> have either of you guys seen Dark City? Yeah. It's sort of, what if this was in Dark City? Like, and then they're just going to get powered down, and then they'll wake up at yeah. nighttime again, and they have to do another radio show. I was thinking it's almost like um, shock treatment, where they have the audience who, like, <laughs> never leaves the studio, oh my God, and, like, they lives there. there. Right, it's just yeah. sort of like, you expect them to leave, and it's, like, daylight outside three weeks have passed. You're like, what? Yeah. It is truly well, the number. they all get locked in at some point, don't they? Well, that's the, um, like, the other members of the staff get locked right. into a room so that they can't leave. I think the thing that makes me feel that way is the number of ads and then the number of different shows that they're doing because there's like the Zorro-ish one there seems to Cave be Man. Caveman right. Detective Hardboiled th- right. right there's some sort of like a soap opera thing going yeah. on and there's a point where like a guy is torturing a woman with like a 
poker. That's like an alien. That's like a spy okay. or an alien okay. thing. That's an alien the thing. Alien it's like, your pink flesh will Oh, yes. Oh, oh, oh. I thought he was just being weirdly horny. I, I, thought, he was, was like, I thought he was kind of, I thought he was supposed to be like a Peter Lorre character. That's what I I mean, yeah. I have been, but I think he's... pink flesh. He's clearly being an alien. Cause yeah. It was the, I mean, I know that there is definitely like a space thing you see at one point. Yeah, it's like, yes. again, going back to all the money they've sunk into props and sets, they have lighting effects going off on stage. Lighting effects. I, I have to imagine some of that they're leaning into it for being like the movie. Because the movie thinks it's funny and not a realistic portrayal of what one might expect at a radio station. The only bit that they would keep cutting back to that for me never got old was Christopher Lloyd as their Foley the Foley, artist. Yeah. <laughs> Christopher Lloyd, again, like I said, he did all his shit in one day. And so you just keep it's... cutting back to him doing increasingly ridiculous things with props or cracking making... Cracking things over... Like, cracking a sugar glass bottle over his head. Right. Yelling into, like, a like a tin kettle. Oh, such, like... I, and I feel like he was at the right level. We got just enough of him without it feeling... I, like, I loved what McKeon and the band was doing, but we got way too much. No, um, we do. Like, the number of times that we cut, especially during scenes that I feel like you don't want to cut. Right. It feels like it kills the momentum right. to cut back to something else. Especially during like mo- the multiple chase scenes that mm-hmm. are cops chasing Ben Ben somewhere in the studio. We cut between that and the stage show every single time. Mm. And it also makes it feel like are we cutting because the chase scene is lasting for like hours? Like what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. You just get more of Michael McKean mugging to the camera, being like, oops. In a in a new in a new <laughs> Yeah, dress. a new outfit, yes. Yeah. And then Michael McKean looks so similar to uh Corbin Burnson. Corbin Burnson in the announcer box. Yeah, yeah. And they're both in like white tuxes. They, yeah, they, they don't look that the actors don't look that much alike, but they the way in they're a styled movie with twenty in movie, people in yeah. it that are we have to follow. They're wearing the same color suit, and they have, like, a vaguely similar face and hairline, and I'm just like, who's... Wait, which one are we looking at right now? Yeah, who's this? Right. And one of them barely speaks. Yeah. So, hard to tell. Yeah. This doesn't matter, I guess. This is just sort of just, like, thinking about plot briefly before we move on. Does it matter, kind of, that you don't care about anyone who's dead in this movie? No, like, no, I don't know that I don't it does. I don't think you want to care about okay. anyone Right, because I think you want to feel sad yeah, about it. Yeah, right. I think in a hard... Or, sorry, a... Mystery. Com- a murder mystery yeah. comedy, you probably don't want to care about them too much. Right. And I guess there's also something to be said, like, not that this is, like, a revolutionary thing for a murder mystery to do, because, like, Ten Little Indians, it happens all the time, where, like, people keep dying throughout the night, too. It's sort of an interesting thing, I guess, potentially, to, you know, keep killing off characters as the movie goes on. I'm not sure that it manages to balance it, does make it particularly the, well. It does individual but. murder just feel like nothing. Right. No, that's... I, I think that's true, partly. It, like, and, and some of them happen, like, so quickly that you barely... When they happen so quickly. Ned Beatty falls into the elevator shaft. It's like, it's like, right. whoa! And then you like, it's like, and we move on. And that's it. Yeah. You, and you need to cut back to the stage. Right. What's Rosemary Clooney singing about? Each of the deaths are even, like, at least on paper their own kind of individual unique way to go. Um, you know, getting electrocuted in the sound booth, falling down at it. The, the laughing gas. The laughing gas. The laughing gas is the one that I kind um, of do like, because, like, when everyone else rushes in, they all start laughing, too, talking about, like, how he's dead. Right. Like, that's that's cute. I'll that give is, that. That is cute. Yeah. But you're right. It does all just happen so fast, and it's to people we barely know because the introductions are truly, like, a just like a spinning wheel like right. it just goes so quickly yeah like on the one hand you don't want to have every character like introduce themselves to someone and be like I... and as you know I'm the station manager but like on the other hand there's so many fucking people that I do have trouble like and your job is what exactly <laughs> like you do the what here now 
So having talked about the plots of this movie, uh, the next place to go, obviously, is sort of actors and characters. So yeah. I guess one starts with Brian Benben as Brian Benben. 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 His uh, name is Roger, right? Roger, yeah, that's Roger right. Roger, yeah, Roger Henderson. Henderson. Right. Right. Because also, canonically, Winky Winky, they're the parents of a character in American Graffiti, poor George Lucas. Oh, is that so? Yeah. So this is a stealth prequel to American Graffiti. Is this like Isaac Asimov, where he's like secretly creating a mega canon? Or like yeah, Stephen exactly. King, right? Where it's like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, all like, in, it's all in Maine. He writes a bunch of stuff, and then after the fact, he's like, He's yeah, like, and it was all the same universe, baby. Sure, Star Wars is happening it's just like, like... thousands of years apart, but yeah, Star Wars is the same universe, just in a <laughs> Right, just, right. Yeah, just a while over. Indiana Jones is probably going on now, too. Yeah, yeah. Especially <laughs> yeah, in this well, time period. Right, exactly. While these stupid murders are happening, Indiana Jones is saving the world from right. Nazis. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, so Brian Benben. I mean, he's ben very ben flat. Ben. He's, I, I think he's bad. I don't know that he's flat. I think he's like. I think that he has no charisma, but yes. I think yeah. that he's like desperately. Tr- like, he's. Mugging chaotic. also? Yeah, yeah, he's doing all. Because he. A lot of his character arc is him having to run and go like, whoa, and like, ooh, it's like him climbing around the letters and stuff. Right. Like running down hallways in a fucking... And he's playing it, like, as big as possible, yes. too. Like. Yeah, with maracas, yeah, and he's playing very big and wide. He's just not... So he's giving it energy, but he just doesn't sell it. I think he has almost a similar issue that the movie in general does, which is there's not levels... Well, I mean, I, again, I feel like it's going to be a consistent thing to say that this person is playing this role very big and broadly, yes. because like you're going to say it about f- almost like fucking everyone. everyone, almost everyone in this movie. And Brian Benben is certainly doing that. It's just, but, he probably has the least six or one of the Yeah, and it, I think it's also because you're supposed to follow and like him, you know, like as a character. It's he's hard to do. He's kind of, I guess, your main character, because like Mary Stuart Masterson can't be your main character because she doesn't really solve anything and you don't get to spend enough time with I her. I would say she's like secondly. Right, no, yeah, I would too. But I, I think Brian Benman is supposed to be the, the main lead. character. Yeah. And it just kind of says something when I find the main character to be like, Unfunny and uncharming and unattractive. He doesn't stand out from a massive cast. And yeah. that's a problem when he's supposed to be your lead character. I don't think he's like ugly. I don't think he's no. ugly either. I just think that he's not attractive enough for me to want to watch him yeah. with a lack of everything else going on. I you know, no, I definitely did not see what people were seeing from Dream On. Or I, I mean, I, I've never seen Dream On. People must have liked it at the time. What is Dream On? It was about? a show. So it had something to do with like incorporating footage of old TV shows somehow. Where it was like his character was effectively raised by TV, so it was one of the first postmodern things in that respect. His name is Martin Tupper. Martin Tupper, there it is. But yeah, it had something to do with like incorporating older footage. He gives he instant in this show he instantly gives like Bacula vibes. Just looking at a picture of him. Oh, okay. (laughs) Basically just like old black and white television series clips would come in to illustrate or punctuate his thoughts and feelings. Right. Like this is such Bacula vibes. That is very yeah, backy. Yeah, very backy. Yeah, he's kind of cute, cute there, I guess. Sure, yeah. yeah, like that's that was cute. a good angle. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> that was a good angle. Nicely brushed. Maybe this just isn't. This just wasn't his. Well, his hair, his vibe. This bizarre. wasn't his cast. Maybe he's just got this sort of like cloud of hair that's just sort of like yeah. constantly like a poof of hair just yeah, yeah atop hair. his head. Yeah, it doesn't really work for him. I don't think in the movie. No, I, I would agree with you. He also just lacks chemistry with his Mary Stu- Right, and again, which is another problem. One of the subplots is I really want to win you back, ex-wife. Frankly, don't give she's a shit. Pre- yeah, like she's probably better off. Yeah, without you at this point. He doesn't seem that great to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Uh, so then, I, I guess. Contrarywise, you have Mary Stuart Masterson as Penny Henderson, which who I would say. 
delivers a wildly grounded performance in a way that kind of makes her fade into the scenery at certain points. Yes, although I will say this. She is the only character that I feel like I have a beat on. Because even if she did at times fade into the background, she was the only person that was giving me something different, which in a weird way did sort of make her pop in a bizarre way. I guess, that, I mean, uh, sure, in the sense that she is doing something that no one else is doing, True. which is portraying a character Being realistically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I do get that, but for me, it sort of just makes me not really care too much about her. Like, I want to like this character a lot more, but she's just so sort of bland yeah. and realistic that I can't... She's the straight man and everything, which yeah. is just not as fun. I'm almost thinking the way to go would have been Jennifer Jason Lee and Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. At this point, you might as well just be doing a Katherine Hepburn impression. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, exactly. Like, you might as well just <laughs> do that. Wow, wow, wow. And it would at least be something. I love her in that movie. Yeah, she's great in that movie. I mean, she's great in everything. Yeah. Maybe she should have been elevated a little bit in some way so as to make her kind of interesting and noticeable. Yeah, maybe she, she was... Plays more like um, I don't want to say ingenue type but she kind of plays it a bit more like earnest she does yeah like a little more like almost innocent yeah in way. like a girl next door type yeah we mentioned this movie earlier but she gives me a similar vibe to Glenn Hetty in Dick Tracy where you're playing this very earnest straight woman romantic interest to the lead right and everyone else around you is doing a cartoon level performance but I guess at least that like Glenn Hetty and Dick Tracy is doing that sort of noir female like True. the thing where it's like where it's like the secretary who's in love with the detective yeah well, and, she, and she's like oh, he'll never notice like how much I'm in love well, with so him. I was gonna say she <laughs> reminds me more of the one from Fatal Attraction. The, the yes, oh, yeah, yes. Uh, Lars Boyle. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. It's In Fatal Instinct. Fatal Instinct, yeah. right? The fit, the parody. Sorry. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the fake one. So I'm so glad we watched that together. That was so much fun. <laughs> it would be one thing if they were a couple who hadn't gotten together yet, and she yeah. was hiding for him, and he was an oblivious dope who just didn't get it. They were married already, and she has renounced you and said she doesn't love you anymore. Maybe. So you can't play that angle. Would hers and Ben Ben's performances have worked better if they were both more explicitly referencing a screen star? That, uh, of old Hollywood in some kind of way. I mean, maybe. Like, in a similar like, way to Jennifer Jason Lee and Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. Would it, well, would it work for us better I if it I don't was... think that Jennifer Jason Lee mimicking sort of like Barbara Stanwyck in His Real Friday is the way to go for this character. Right, that's what I, I was going yeah, to say. Like, it would mean... it would be something, I know, but saying. I don't think it would I gel. Think want, I think you want, like, a Gene Arthur, which is, people don't really know Gene Arthur as well, but Gene Arthur will give you the sort of, like, plucky, you know, honest woman vibes that I think think you want versus like Barbara Stanwyck being like sort of like sultry sexy like a vamp right, kind of yeah vamp I don't think you want Catherine Hepburn because Catherine Hepburn gives you either ultra feminist or like fucking wackadoo <laughs> yeah I, it almost feels like like Catherine Hepburn would have been like uh, as a character archetype would have been almost too competent for the role yeah. you know like she would have worked this my out. god she would have said many times right she would have like worked out the mystery on yeah. her own within 30 minutes or what something what are you talking about it's clearly Stephen Tobolowsky yeah. yeah I think you want I think you want Jean Arthur Look to Easy Living. That's my... Easy Living. That's, that's Lee's, that's Lee's, Lee's hint to George you. George Lucas, watch Easy Living. And then, and then get back to rewrite us. Rewrite the character. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then, then commission movie. them to rewrite this thing. I'm really scared to step on to the next thing, because who who do we go to? I mean, like, really? I think we just really quickly kind of blow through everyone fucking else in this it's movie. such a shame, because so, there's so many good like, people in this movie. not mention them and just... who's like Don't go through the list. Yeah. And we'll just see who stands out to us. 
Uh, like Michael McKean in his mugging. Yes, Michael McKean's makes fun. Makes an impression. Makes right. An impression. Not really a character per se, but yeah. fun nonetheless. I, I do think it's, it's, I do, I do appreciate that he is able to find something to do and stand out in what is always, always like a Hieronymus, Hieronymus Bosch level, like painting <laughs> yeah, level yeah. of just chaos around him. Yeah. And like I, there's always movement, sound, noise, people, this, that. And yeah. he always is popping in those yeah. scenes. Yeah. And I do also, in a similar vein, um, Christopher Lloyd... Agreed, also. Uh, ...also stands out just for being a weirdo in a booth. Yeah. Time. No lines, really. He's all just... Yeah. He'll, say, he'll be like, he'll, oh, I can't make the fence smash right. Yeah, or, or like, he's the one who does say, like, he's dead whenever they find yeah, yeah. the... Which, like, where do you time to get out of the booth for that one scene? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And he goes back up to his... <laughs> and never leaves, booth. yeah. Because they imply, too, that he's on some floor that, like, nobody else is on. Yeah, yeah. but, like, he must... Can he see onto the stage? Maybe it's like a liminal space. It's it's in between. It's everywhere and nowhere. Yeah. I like Michael Lerner because I think he's, like, mm-hmm. well-suited for this type of role. The but like, yeah. But yeah. the character of the detective doesn't really matter too much. He doesn't really have much of a character. And it almost feels honest. like... So, it, like, I know this is not the only way to approach a murder mystery, but it almost feels like it's one of those things where, like, the one you are following is the cop in something mm. like, like it's it's a little strange to me that I guess they throw in a police officer who's kind of almost like a hindrance to Brian Benben. So it almost feels like like the protagonist of this movie, I guess, is Brian Benben because he's the one trying to solve the murder mystery, which is usually who the protagonist is for a murder mystery. But then you also have the cop who's not really there. Like it almost feels like you could write a version of this where the cop is the central character and he's like, I got caught into this radio station yeah. to find who like who was killing all these people and shit like that. So like I think the character is kind of not great and incidental to the larger machinations of the plot, he, but I like Michael Lerner. He's mostly there to just him and him and the cops are just there to be the heavies. Yeah, to yeah. to antagonize well, like Ben like mistakenly of ticking clock as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like aside from like yeah, murders are going to keep happening. He's going to the catch. Only stakes are that like yeah, he's increasingly a suspect. For right? Them. Yeah, he believes that it's Brian Benpen, so he's going yeah. to. Yeah. And you have two modes for the cops in these movies, and one of them is that they're the protagonists and they're in charge, and the other is that they're, they're doofuses, or they just want to make arrests and yeah. they don't care. Right, they're just, like, blustering through, being like, by the end of the day, someone's going to jail for this, and I don't care who, or whatever. Yeah. Um, I liked... Who was, like, the the page... Uh, oh, yeah, he was good. Um, yeah. Uh, fucking... <sighs> I'm looking at him now. Scott Michael Campbell. There you yeah. go. I, I, he, he has, like, the look, weirdly, like, his face looks like it's look. that... He like, like, does. Look. I was like, have I seen him before? And it's just because he looks he like kind of has every like, other... Sort right, of he looks like, like, yeah, like every other, like, juvenile character. scamp of a page. Right, in a 1930s Rose, movie. Right? Yeah, it's like, where, like, he has, like, a weird baby yeah, face. Yeah, you me of the one from fucking Hotsucker. Right, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's who I was thinking of. Like, yeah. the same guy. No, it's, he seems like it should be. That's like that guy. Yeah, the little, yeah. There's always, like, a little, like, weaselly, like, one wants to be loved. Yes. Like, youthful character acting very chummy with everyone and shit like that. Rose, because he walks into the woman's dressing room and is like, oh, boobs. Yeah, <laughs> yes. She's not around for very long, but I liked uh, Anita Morris. I liked Anita Morris, too. Yeah, it was it was fun that she got to do a little bit Her of singing. The whole thing singing. is basically a red herring, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, she does a little singing, she does a little... Ah! Yeah. How dare you come in here? I'm changing. Yeah. I think that's about it for characters that I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, well, I mean, Dylan Baker was there for like. Like a I know that Jeffrey Tambor was in it. Right. Jeffrey Tambor. I mean, Larry dead. Miller. I kind of thought like was fun, but like again, well, he was dies. That, did I find him fun? Or right. Did I find or the role. Fun. I'm she. Well, that's a good monocle. The monocle, the monocle yeah. popping in. Accent. 
Larry Miller. I don't know. I mean, yeah, he was doing some. Larry I don't know Miller's what he was. Larry Miller's competent, doing right? He's yeah. very good at what he does. Herman Katzen. It says he's German here. So oh, okay. okay there you I go. think it's a German accent. Um, yeah, like. Um, I don't remember m- much of Corbin Bernson's performance. Yeah, I mean he gets electrocuted. That's the most of what I got from him. Stephen Tobolowski is not much of a character in this movie until he's revealed, and then he gets lines, and then he dies. Right. I mean, like that's the thing. Like it's almost impossible for me to have ever considered him to be the murderer because he shows up so little prior to like he's, the point that they reveal. Like have him be in the shot making shifty glances. So that's right. So that's the yeah. thing. He is in a bunch of the shots, but he he never is acting in a way that would ever, yeah, even definitely. if you're looking for it. Right, it's, it's, it just feels like he's giving such he's, a sort of quiet performance yeah, that it's down. like you can't even begin to focus on this character to consider. Because there's so much goofball. Right, and then it's also, it's like, well, if I have to consider the sound guy who said, like, ten lines of dialogue, again, am I also considering the three backup singers? Am I considering the crooner? Am I considering, like, the drummer or some shit like that? Dude, it's When you do put too many people into your cast, you do kind of weirdly paint yourself into a corner because you, you have to make a choice about who you're going to spend the most time with, right? Right. Because you can't spend it all with everyone. But then it's a weird choice to make the killer one of the people you spent the least amount of time with because then it kind of means nothing when it's revealed to be him. Right, it's just sort of like, oh. Like, I guess, that, I guess that's weird. surprising, but only because we don't know who he is. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ned Beatty's in it as the general, but fine performance, but, like, nothing memorable happening there. Where's um, some kind of general-looking coat. Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, Bobcat Goldthwait as, as you said, wild writer. Yeah. <laughs> he just kind of does the Bobcat Goldthwait. Thing. Yeah, he's doing his gold twitch stick. They have Thank some you. interesting um, bits of uh, the interesting cutaways to the writers' room a couple times. Yeah, there there are there are some fun Which things like that. And there's like it's pretty rough in there. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it's pretty rough. At one point, the janitor, who's a, a woman of color, offers a line, and they're like, "That's a great line. You're, yeah. you're the best." And then they don't try to turn. Right, it is. So yeah, so I'm glad you brought her up real quick because again, I don't know who this character is because she doesn't seem to have a name. I don't know who the actor is who plays her. Three times or so throughout the movie, she's the one who saves the day in a yes. small way. Like you said, she'll punch up a line of dialogue or something or then at the end she's like oh yeah actually um, my dad used to work at the radio station and told me that like all those other guys worked so she's like effectively the one who kind of solves the mystery yeah. and she is a minor character again without a name I don't uh, know who the actor is and gets nothing for it right, and again you feel like so because th- there's a little bit of uh, this sort of thing in the movie where Billy he's like I love the radio so much blah 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 and like and throughout the movie he's like oh do you need me to step in as a director do you need me to like help out as a writer and then at the end he gets to be on stage perform yeah. in the radio place he got something and it kind of feels like it should be one of those movies where like all these other minor characters like get a thing that they wanted by the end she should have got like well, a writer's job or something she was basically just plot point of vehicle you know what I mean right I'm just like, saying like you, she should have paid off oh, in okay. some way where like at the end of the movie they reward her with a writing job or She's, something she salutes from the biplane honestly that'd be fucking great if like the biplane was out just her and they're like hey fellas <laughs> back fourth time saving the day baby so yeah and then she still hasn't got a pay raise. That's right. Yes. I'm gonna, this is going to be somewhat of a long throwback, but do you remember, this would have been back in, I believe, our first season, and I, we, <laughs> we stumbled into the joke of there being a traveling bar that a woman would have a, on board her little plane, and um, maybe that's her. Maybe that's her. <laughs> a traveling bar? 
Yeah, it was like a traveling bar on like a plane that would just like land. I, yeah, I, think I don't remember this, this at came all. Up when we were talking about Bunraku. And, um, I mean, it's been a while since I thought about I that, so it's very that. possible, yeah. I don't remember that Go, one go back and listen to it, yeah. people, it's there. <laughs> Editor's note, call back to episode two, Budraku. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to get, like, George Burns and Rosemary Clooney and Billy Barty, but then we have to keep cutting back. Now that you've got them in the to movie... justify them being there. Right, you can't just show five seconds of Rosemary Clooney starting to sing a song and then, like, cut away. It's like, you have to go back to her and watch her again. Even if it interrupts the momentum of everything else right. that's happening, you gotta look at the stage again. Which yeah. is really just kind of the movie's M.O. to begin with. So, Having covered that, I guess it's time to get into fixes for Radioland Murders. Does anyone want to start? I can start. Okay. I found this movie challenging. <laughs> Challenge. Yeah. Just because it is just so flabby and you just sort of lose track of time and it's just, it's hard to hold on to anyone or anything. So a lot of what I'm going to discuss is going to be sort of more generalized. I don't have a lot of very specific. My first thought is this movie needed to be a lot more like Noises Off, I think, to be successful. I think it was reaching for farce. I think it could have gotten there, but it was too distracted trying to do other shit. Right. So I'm keeping the, the radio thing. I'm keeping the this is our inaugural night because I, I like those stakes there. It's... They're locally high, but it's not like the world is going to end, right. right? I want it to be like, we get, you know, the chaos backstage, how that's sort of appearing on stage. I want there to be more of like, what are people at home getting mm. from this experience? I would love to hear any kind of commentary from people in their own homes being like, God, what is this? Like the 80th ad? Yeah. There's just one radio play happening. We're not doing like eight or whatever the fuck it is because that just makes it seem like it's way too long right i want it to be uh having been written by like secretly written by the killer and that as people are dying it's sort of mirroring the deaths that are taking place in this i'm thinking it'll be more of sort of like a noir murder mystery sort of thing and that when the police are eventually called in i think it would be more interesting if like the lead detective or whatever has some kind of connection to the killer mm -hmm. and that he realizes, oh my God, this detective character in this radio play is based off of me. Um, and that he's able to sort of use his own personal experiences and memories to figure out like who the fuck it is. Mm -hmm. um, I just think, and then I think, you know, you can have the slapstick, you can have some of the, the musical sequences, but I'm not going to do that many of them. I feel like that part needs to be way pared down. I think if you wanted to shoot all of that shit, put it on the extended edition. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Put it on your extended digital release. Right. right. Like, just give us the parts of it and then keep the focus your story. Because I think one of the major mistakes this movie makes is it is way too tickled by... The filler bits. It's way too tickled by the ads yeah. and the music and the, the radio dramas. And I think, honestly, it's more interested in that than it is in the murder mystery, yeah, which I is would almost, a major problem. I, I'd be inclined to agree with you. Clearly, the people behind this movie like, fucking love live radio concept. But beyond that, it was sort of, well, we need like a story to prop this up. Right. So what if someone gets murdered? I kind of also think, like, if you just want to tell a story about the wacky goings-on at, like, a 1930s radio station, I think that's probably enough. Right. Like, you don't need to then insert a murder mystery that you can't follow because that gives you a unified plot through it. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. Couldn't it just be a day in the life? Couldn't it be, right. like... I mean, like, the entire thing is right there where it's just, like, this is the opening night for our right. radio and, like, everything goes wrong. There's your story. Or I, I also kind of thought about, couldn't it just be that, like, oh, my God, like, this, like, huge, hot, up-and-coming 
child crooner band, whatever, is like visiting for our inaugural night. You know, like there are ways that you can make the stakes pleasantly high if what you really wanted to do was to just do a bunch of bits about 1930s radio. Right. So that's my that's my my fix slash <laughs> rant. Nice. I can go next. Okay. So we're talking about the movie having three plots, so I threw out two of them and did one that I wanted to do. Well one. The scripts plot. I like the play Sky on the Bat. I don't care about the murder, so it, uh-huh. we can keep the title, but it's called that because that's the name of one of the shows they do or right. something. I don't know, but it's, it's like what, the, their headlining show or whatever. Yeah. But I wanted to do a movie where they are like having a big night, they have to impress the sponsors. It's not their inaugural night, but it's like a recontract up right. thing or whatever. They have all these established properties where it's like mid-season or like, you know, season twos or threes of shows that everyone knows and loves these characters and these franchises. Also on the same night, like there's been like a sort of failed renegotiation of, of, of like pay or whatever. And so like all of the writers except the main writer, Roger, have walked out. So there's just him and there are like just aren't any scripts for the, for the night. They have all these shows have to go on. And so they have to rope like a bunch of other people who aren't normally writers. They're just like extra staff on hand to just like page and like the janitor and someone else has to just get shoved in the writers. Anyone who's like got a spare moment and has mm-hmm. to just get in the writer's room and help write these scripts in time. And Penny is still the secretary to the director or whatever, but they're not married. There's just like a, a sort of like maybe a tension there um, or is something that's like fresh and new. And I think that like what starts to happen is sort of like the psychodrama that is going on between all of the people starts to like seep into all the various scripts <laughs> throughout the night because it's like all the people... Doing like self-insert. Yeah, are like writing... Yeah, like all the characters are turning into just like the people who are writing the scripts. And then like, like the Jan will leave and somebody else will come in and take over and so like the character will just sort of have like multiple personalities but like it suddenly becomes a different person and just like it's like an in-movie version of like playing exquisite corpse where you, you <laughs> everyone writes a line you pass right. it around yeah and so these increasingly bizarre surrealist plot lines develop and like uh, I don't have any details planned out for it but yeah basically like throughout the night they're just watching these radio plays where like the characters are making the most bizarre 180 degree turns and, and like things start to play out that people are like names come out like somebody's got like a um, person named like I'm just trying to think of two names that rhyme whatever but like somebody has like a rival in the show or whatever and they or in the studio and they're like they create a rival in the in the TV show that's like Gil and Bill like yeah, Bill, Bill. Bill my name is Bill and we're yeah, yeah my script. name is Bill and I like I murder him with a yeah. knife and I hate him so much and the guy in the studio Gil in the studio is like ah <laughs> yeah like just like out of hijinks around like all the people sort of like watching this unfold and taking the, it personally the audience having one reaction <laughs> yeah the people that are yeah working there having the similar re- I have like a different reaction of like what is happening like what is it? like all this dirty laundry is being aired? Like, if there was like a workplace crush that's like, you yeah, know, like, that starts to play. You, you actually yeah. like kiss her in the thing. Yeah, I think there's. Why like, is that how you feel about? There's me? like maybe a romance show that is being played, and like like three different people are trying to use it as an opportunity to confess, mm. and so like the plot keeps changing to like tailor to all these three different people's attempted <laughs> confessions. <laughs> That was my, my rough idea. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. I like that. So I wanted to kind of... This is a movie that should aggressively be my shit. I love mm. old-timey radio. I like murder mysteries. And like comedy. Right. I think comedy's all right. <laughs> this is a movie that should aggressively work for me, but it does not. So... 
I, I think the one thing that I was kind of most interested in going into this because it was what I knew this movie was ostensibly about is the murder mystery plot of the three plots. That's probably the one that I'm going to stick with just because I'm kind of most interested in that sort of thing. I think to begin with, you need a director who has a better sense of, I don't want to say comedy because I guess Mel Smith has a sense of comedy, certainly, but like someone who kind of knows how to do this on screen better. And I think someone yeah. like Joe Dante is kind of the way to go. He's really good at making like live action cartoons, basically. Yeah. So I think someone like that would probably be a more interesting choice. In yeah. To begin with, you're focusing your tone by having a director akin to that who kind of knows it better and by sort of narrowing your focus. So what you've got to do, I think, is you're, I'm going to eliminate the detective characters entirely. I think what's going to happen is it's going to be the general and just the general who is killed early on. And that is the murder mystery. And his son is like, look, I'm not going to call the police because I don't want a scandal right now because we have all those, you know, all the sponsors and everyone's here watching a live radio show. But, like, we need to solve this within the next two hours because, like, I can only not call the police for, for so long. Right. Like, I can, I, I'm rich, so they can kind of, like, <laughs> I can kind of deal with this for the time being. But after two hours, like, I want to know who did this so that I can tell the police and not have this be a scandal when the time the night is That's over. That's a good ticking Yeah. So I kind of want that to be the case. I think we're going to follow the Mary Stuart Masterson character predominantly uh, versus the Brian Benman character. They are not married. I think they're young and they can kind of have a little bit of an unspoken crush on each other. I also want her to be a writer in the writer's room versus an assistant to the director or whatever the fuck it is that she is because I think that kind of makes more sense for if you're trying to solve a mystery, you might want to follow a character who is a writer because they should theoretically have yeah. a sense of this sort of thing. And I do think that the thing is that Brian Benman should become a red herring so that Mary Stuart Masterson starts to suspect him later on. Whereas in this movie, Movie, you know that he's clearly not the murderer from the get-go because he's this goofy guy's been running around and you've never seen him with someone else who's been killed. It gets so tiresome after a while that right. they suspect him because you're like, I get why you think that, but we know he's not. So right, we exactly. On, so like, like, I kind of want her to start to suspect him toward the end. I, I think this is the other thing too is that people need to have clearer motives in this movie where everyone kind of has a motive for wanting to kill the general for one reason or another. You know, it can still be Stephen Tobolowsky with his TV that he's mad because the general holds the patent to it because he created it when he worked for him or some shit like that. You can have someone else who's mad because he bought out the radio station they used to work at and like so it's just you all need a reason to want to kill this guy to make it sort of easily suspicious and frankly for me for this purpose it doesn't really matter who killed him it could still be Toblowski because of the TV it could be someone else I don't care that's not really the problem of this movie the problem is everything leading up to the the solution of the mystery itself so that's what I want to do I just kind of want to like narrow focus and streamline this a little bit more in a way that would make it a more pleasurable experience for me for me for me all right, and that's the Radio Land Murders, baby. Would you recommend this movie? I'm gonna go with no. Yeah, I'd say no. I I think there there are some funny bits, but like, and it's not like a torturous. No, and it's not like a wildly long movie, but it feels feels. like a wildly long movie. This movie feels much longer than it is. It's hard to follow. Yeah, I certainly could not recommend it to you. It's easy to stop paying attention to it. Very. Yeah, (laughs) that's why. That's why at various points I was like, wait, does the janitor maid woman like get a pay raise or a promotion at the end? And like. No, she doesn't. Like, but I was legitimately like, if you had told me, yes, canonically, she does get that, I'd be like, oh, I don't remember that happening. Must have drifted off for that one. Yeah. No, it's. I would not recommend this. I would not recommend the weather or the movie. Yeah, <laughs> both, man. Yeah, both, frankly, unpleasant. It is just pouring out there. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. So having covered all of that, uh, obviously, dratpack.com is our website. Yeah. Facebook.com slash whywatchpodcast. You can subscribe to us and follow us or whatever they're calling it on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Premium. Obviously, please do one of those if yeah. you're not already. And we'll be back in two weeks with a mini episode as our summer of murder mystery <laughs> continues. We'll reveal the next one that we are tackling, and it is very apt and fitting, and it is a uh, big nut to crack, shall we say. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.